Hey landlords, are you ready to level up your rental game and simplify your life? Well, get ready to meet your new best friend, KeyCheck. KeyCheck is your all-in-one solution for stress-free property management with tenant-paid screenings, rent payment processing, online lease creation with eSign, and a suite of incredible landlord tools. You'll wonder how you ever lived without it. No more chasing down checks or sifting through piles of applications. KeyCheck helps you organize and manage all things landlording in a simple and efficient way. So if you're tired of the rental chaos and crave seamless, efficient management, head over to KeyCheck.com and sign up today. Make landlord life a breeze with KeyCheck, the game changer for modern property owners. Welcome to Landlord Diaries, where we talk about midterm rentals and the opportunities behind them. We'll share landlord stories, talk about maximizing investment potential, and discuss how to live the very best landlord life. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Furnished Finder, the place for everything midterm rentals. Remember to like and subscribe if you enjoy our content. We are back with another episode of The Landlord Diaries. It's your host, Kelly Bailey, with six midterm rentals in the Austin, Texas, and surrounding areas. And we just want to say a special appreciation. Thanks for listening. So if you are enjoying the show, we would absolutely love it if you can leave us a review on uh, either Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast that allows for a review. And uh, my co-host here with us today, Katie. Hey, hey. Hey, everyone. I'm Katie here back with Kelly. Um, we're so excited. This week we talked to Erin, who is right over in my neck of the woods in Denver, Colorado. And she has so much great content. She's a real estate professional, and she has really jumped headfirst into the midterm rental space. And she's also an author. So she is just about to release her second book. Um, her first book is all about the American nomads, which are such a great tenant base for midterm rentals. So definitely check that out. Um, she has a, so much knowledge and it was a joy to talk to and just really like goes into not only the, the hard data side of statistics and everything, but also the soft side of marketing and data with getting to know your market and your potential tenants. And then really how to turn those leads into, uh, you know, leases. So it's a really, really high value episode. We hope you enjoy it. Like Kelly said, please leave us a review, a subscribe. It helps us tremendously. And it lets us know that you guys are into this content so that we can keep providing it. Um, and please remember that this episode and every episode are brought to you by Furnished Finder. So Furnished Finder is the go-to online marketplace for your midterm rentals. Um, it is a lead generation site where you can find potential tenants to connect with. With. And from there, you can communicate, you can sign a lease, you can do, you can do all of the things. So it's 99 bucks to list your property and that's a year. So you get all the leases, all the leads you want for um, $99 a year. So be sure to check it out. And here we go. In today's episode, we travel to Denver, Colorado to talk with Aaron Spradlin, co-owner of Aaron and James Real Estate. Aaron is a real estate professional, consultant, and author. Aaron loves to educate others on real estate topics, but especially the midterm rental model. Today, we will dive into her first book, American Nomads, and focus on the growing population of remote workers and who they are. You can follow 
her channel on YouTube by searching Aaron and James Real Estate. Thanks for being with us today, Aaron. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me today. Well, let's jump into the first question, which I'm gonna I'm gonna beat Katie to the punch today. And we like to start off with <laughs> tell us about your personal investment portfolio. Sure. So we've owned uh, I think six or seven properties total. Right now we have three and then our primary. Uh, so we have a condo in Denver and we just sold a condo in Denver and then we have a primary residence in Colorado Springs and we are acquiring um, a primary in Mexico, which will be an interesting, not a primary in Mexico, an investment in Mexico where we'll be doing the medium term rental space. And then in the past, We've had, I guess, a handful of properties as well that for the most part, we've done medium term rentals on because the laws have changed. So we got into the space because we were doing short term rentals in Denver. And then when the laws changed, we ended up uh, moving into the medium term space. And then after that, as we took on new properties, we kept in the medium term space because we just liked it better as a rental model. And I especially like the fact that you enjoy educating others on a variety of real estate topics, but especially the midterm rental strategy. So what made you want to get into the education side of things? Oh, um, that's a great question. I think because I think with real estate investing, there's some mantras or ideas about the only way to do it. And I think that short-term rentals kind of broke that up. So when I was early in my career in 2017, I would have people come and they would say, I want a duplex. And I'd be like, well, you don't have the money for a duplex, but a really good strategy for you would be to buy a property and do an STR, short-term rental in the basement. And sometimes you would get pushback, like someone had a relative or whatever that was looking out for them that would say, no, you know, Airbnb is not the way to go. So I found that I was doing a lot of education in that way. And then when we started to really like medium term rentals and we saw the models and the laws changing throughout the front range, um, I would start to have to present this to people and say, you know, I know that you've heard all about the money with short term rentals and you're really excited about that, but the law is no longer favorable for that. And you might consider medium term rentals because you'll you know, be in compliance with the law. You'll still be able to use it during the summertime if you want. And also, um, you know, you'll still make pretty good money and you can maybe knock out the property management side of it as well. So I found myself doing a lot of education on that and trying to convince people. Um, and so then I thought that there was an opportunity to have a YouTube channel about it because I think it is something that we're going to see more and more growth in. And obviously the book is a lot about that as far as people being freed from being geographically tethered to their jobs. Now they can work from anywhere. So I guess my theory is that there will be a lot of people that want to live a month or two in a different city, um, especially young people, you know, people from their late twenties to late thirties that aren't necessarily having kids yet. You know, they have fur babies, but they want to travel. So just educating people on the fact that this model exists, it's lucrative, and there's a huge market for it. So I found that those pieces, you know, people need to be brought up to speed on that. And I, I enjoy that part of it. And just to fill everyone in, because Aaron and I are both located somewhat near Denver. Um, and Aaron, you'll probably be able to give a little bit more color to this than me. But um, Denver is one of the cities that said, you cannot have a short term rental that is outside of your primary residence. Is that how they I don't know the details because I've never had a short-term rental here. Um, but Erin, why don't you talk to us a little bit more about like when that happened, what the law is currently, and how that kind of affected 
your personal investments, because I know that this Denver is not the only place that it's happened in the country and it's not the only place that it's going to happen in the country. Yeah, I think I heard a stat not too long ago that 3% of the nation has regulation on short-term rentals. That seems small to me, but you know, like there's more than that, but maybe that's the case. Maybe it's mostly in big cities, but the regulation comes in city to city. So Denver and Colorado Springs don't have the same law. Denver and Boulder don't have the same law. So you have to check with your local um, city. But the way that they do it is you're kind of looking at three things. So you're looking to see if the city code has something written in um, about the length of the rental. And the majority of the cities, if they have anything written in, it's going to be for 30 days plus, um, or they're not going to have anything or they will have adopted a specific law. So in the past, it was always illegal to do short-term rentals in Denver. The code has always been 30 days or less is illegal. 30 days or fewer has been illegal in Denver. However, no one ever paid attention to it because it wasn't an issue until Airbnb showed up. So when Airbnb showed up, Denver got more serious about compliance. Denver is extremely serious about it. They are very good at finding people and as of the last time I checked, they're the only city in the United States that actually issues felonies if you break the law because you sign an affidavit on it. And they pretty aggressively went after some real estate agents and lawyers um, that had kind of skirted the system. So when these regulations came in, you know, we had our own investments and we went into real estate because we thought that it would be smart to be, you know, real estate agents that are focused on the short term model because people need to know these laws. And so we've always been super focused on being able to tell our clients, this is the law. This is the city that you can do what you want to do in. Um, these are the cities that are better for it or not good. And again, our benefit would be to help you avoid doing something like that in Denver where you think it's okay. And and to be clear, you can do a primary residence short-term rental in Denver, but you can't do a straight investment. Whereas a city like Arvada, you can do a straight mm -hmm. short-term rental investment in Arvada. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's your primary or um, an investment, but it's city to city. So you're just, you're looking at the code and trying to figure out what makes sense. And as cities adopt these limitations on these rentals or just start to monitor it, then a medium term rental is a great option because you are usually at that 30 plus day threshold and your property is still furnished. Well, before we jump in to the focus of this episode being who are remote workers, I'm really excited for you guys to hear about this. But before we jump in, I had asked Aaron, what are some things that and, you know, especially being a consultant and knowing the market, what do you think our furnished finder audience of midterm rental hosts needs to hear? And so one thing, there are three things she wanted to talk about. And so we'll, we'll cover those real fast, which are the first one is how to properly write up your listing on furnished finder. And I'll combine it with one of the other ones, which is be purposed with your headline. So what, what advice do you have for that, Erin? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Today's episode is proudly sponsored by Furnished Finder, the ultimate platform for hassle-free midterm rentals. Whether you're a seasoned landlord or just getting started, 
Furnished Finder is the place for you. With Furnished Finder, you can say goodbye to booking fees and hello to direct bookings for 30 day plus days. It's a win-win for everyone involved. So if you're ready to experience the joys of midterm renting and take a load off your landlord shoulders, head over to FurnishedFinder.com today. We make it easy to get started. We're grateful to Furnished Finder for sponsoring this episode and we're sure you'll love what they have in store for you. Um, across all the sites, uh, you see a tendency to write very generic headlines like cozy bungalow near Denver. Um, and I think that when you're talking about these generic terms, it's not telling much. And Furnish Finder is really great for this because you can write a specific headline. You're not limited in what you can say. So I think taking advantage of that. So for my headline, I always put when the property is available. So even though the calendar will direct you to this, I think it's a good idea to just really reinforce it for people that are searching. So I think a best practice is putting when it's available and then your top features. So I do feel like people that are coming into the medium term space likely are coming to the city or the area based on its proximity to a cool geographical, you know, some kind of fun thing to do or access to the city. So for mine, I put you know, when it's available, I also put what the walk score is. So you can pull the walk score from Redfin. Then I would say anything that's 80 or up, you want to advertise in the headline. Uh, parking is a big issue in cities. So I put that it's a free parking. And then I've noticed too on Furnish Finder, um, when you do a deeper dive into your blogs and stuff, there's an emphasis on safety. And I think if we believe that a lot of the tenant pool are females, um, then safety is important. So in my case, I have a 24-hour doorman on site, so I mentioned that in my listing so that people, uh, you know, go straight to that. But I think for people that don't have that, you could say, you know, nest camera on site or fenced area or known as a safe, you know, you might want to talk about those things too. It's a little bit touchy because you don't want to talk about safety so much that people think the place is unsafe. But I think it's also a good addition to say to your tenants, like, there are these safety features built in. That's a good point because I can tell you that I'm looking through Furnish Finder listings every single day and cozy, bungalow, getaway, um, all of these words are so overused that it means nothing, right? Whereas more, I'm like, tell me, is it a condo? Is it an apartment? Is it a house? Is it, where is it? Is it downtown? Is it in the burbs? Is it you know, do I get any extra space with it? Is it like, tell me some actual things of value within the listing and within the headline, because we are scrollers, right? That's just the nature of everyone now. Um, and I think with photos too. So can you tell us and our listeners a little bit about how you do your property photography and if you have any tips for them along those lines? Yeah. Um, I actually feel pretty passionate about this topic because I just revamped a property and I had had some concerns. It's been on Furnished Finder for a while, like two or three years. It's been doing well, but we made a pretty major mistake. And you'll understand this, Katie, being from Colorado. We photographed it on a gray day, which it's almost hard to find a gray day in Colorado, but somehow we managed to. And so the place just appeared depressing. You know, it mm -hmm. had sort of a blue overtone and then it's photographed on a gray day. So I know if I was looking through all the listings and I saw a place where it looks like it rains constantly and you know, you always feel bad about yourself. I wouldn't want to rent that spot. So we just revamped it and put in a much lighter color scheme, more similar to the white walls in the back 
you know, that you can see in my background. Um, we made sure to only photograph it on a sunny day. We had a more modern photographer come in. So we actually looked at people or companies that do staging and picked our mm. favorite stager and had that come in. We did pay more. So typically we in the past, we were paying $100 for more standard photos. This one was 400 but I think we will see the benefit on the back end. And then the other recommendation I have for people is to maybe consider doing color blocking. So you can look it up on Pinterest, but it's where you would cut a line across a wall with a, you know, a brighter color or highlight the desk area by making that all yellow. There's better ways to do it. But I think doing something like that is a great option for your first photo because it will really um, bring their attention to the photo. And I always say, you know, these sites, it's like a dating profile for mm -hmm. your property. So you want to make it look its best. And I'm going to piggyback on that a little bit because we, one of our midterm rentals is located in Iowa and there is literally no sun. So the day there was sun, we got a photographer to come out there. And the other thing is with the, with the color blocking, you said we actually, this condo is, it's a great little condo. It's a perfect place for travel nurses or anyone. Um, but it's pretty, it's pretty basic when we got it. Um, and I just hired a designer to not design the whole space, but to give me a consultation over the phone. So we just FaceTimed. And then she came up with some great ideas um, to help us give it a pow and to stand out. So it did not cost us a whole lot. It was just an hour of her time. And she was able to send us some links to some furniture that would really make a strong impact, but were still affordable and durable. Um, and it cost her an hour of time and she got paid for it. And it, it cost me an hour of her time. Like it was very reasonable. So it's, it's worth it. I, I'm with you 100%. I think people have reluctance about paying extra for photos and also implementing some of these things, but it's like your listing is going to stand out so much more and it's a numbers game. The more eyes you can have, the more interest you can have, the better you're going to do. And there are some great sites like Society6. You can buy murals that aren't hard to put up that really stand out. Or um, one thing I did for this, for this last property is I went on to Etsy and... Um, you know, professional, you know, people that come in and uh, why can't I think of the word, but designers uh, put out Benjamin Moore color blocks. And so mm. you can pick, you can pay 15 bucks and it will tell you exactly like this color goes on the wall. This color goes on the ceiling. This is a good color for the bathroom. And we followed it. And I, I mean, I was ecstatic with the results. It was awesome. That's great. So I think we have an example right behind you of color blocking above your fireplace. Is that a green accent, like an emerald green? It is. I love it. It looks so nice. Thank you. People that we bought this place from, it's all white and green. So that was their, um, but I like it. I think, yeah, exactly. That's a good example of color blocking. All right. That was a fun conversation about marketing your property well and how to make sure it presents itself to your travelers in its best light. So let's see, what makes a good property and what doesn't? That's what you wanted to share with the audience. I think that your 
talking about buying a property, what I would look for is anything with two bathrooms or more that will guarantee the tenants stay longer. It also will make it easier on the resale. A lot of people do not like one bathroom properties just because it causes some friction if you have more than one person there. Um, so that is a recommendation I have. I also think if you have a fence, you should advertise that because pet friendly is huge right. for medium term workers and then uh, or medium term travelers, remote workers. And then finally, um, I don't like a yard. I know people love to, and my real estate clients will be like, oh, it's a gorgeous yard. And I'm like, that looks like a headache and an expensive one. So I think when I'm telling people, I'm kind of like, you know, if there's a way that you can minimize your yard, whether you rock it in or pave it in, or if you get a yard that's just smaller, um, as an investor, that will save you a lot of headaches because yards just cost a lot to maintain. And they're on a, they're the first impression for a lot of clients. So it is very important that they look good aesthetically, but it costs a lot of money to maintain that. Yeah. So Katie, you don't know this. I just added a fun marketing piece to all of, well, I started with the listing that's currently available and then I'll add it to the ones that are coming available as, as needed, but I'm going to try it out on this first listing. So we all know around the country, midterm rentals are picking up steam, and therefore you have to you have to be competitive to stand out. You you need to constantly be analyzing your price, looking at how your photos look compared to others. Like, do you need to make any upgrades? So we we know all these things, but then you can think of what are ways that I can embrace my niche market and highlight those items so that it attracts the type of traveler that I'm trying to attract. And so my, my husband and I, our niche market is adventure seekers. We, all of our mm. places are on trails. We like to be able to walk to dinner or, you know, get on a 10 mile bike or something like that. So that's one of ours. So we always make that one, our main photo to show the adventure side and tie in the, the headline to work with that. But I was like, okay, how else can we stand out? So we have a masseuse that we really like and she does in-home massages so i was like totally and you sent her that. to my house <laughs> nope she's just for <laughs> my guests <laughs> if you come stay in one of my homes you can use her <laughs> but her name is anna and her prices are very reasonable she's uh our massage for under a hundred dollars so i just added that i put it a marketing piece and put a, a picture i built it on canva and I put a picture of someone getting a nice hot stones massage. I put a picture of some bicycles on, on the, like under the sunset and then a picture of a work from home desk. And so that's what mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure people knew is, hey, we have high high speed Internet for those that are working from home. We set up, uh, you know, work from home spaces so that you have desks to work from or multiple areas in the home that you could work. We have an in-house masseuse if you would like us to have her come stop by. And we started adding bicycles. So I don't commit to them just because, you know, things break. But the idea of if you would like a bicycle during your stay, let us know and we'll do our best to make that happen. And so we have two properties now that they've saw that note and we're like, Oh, so what's the deal with the bicycles? I'm, I, we're very interested in those. And so we go scour Facebook and find $50, $40 cruisers and then make sure and, and get the bikes to them in a reasonable manner and have a liability form that they can fill out saying, Hey, if anything happens to you on this bike ride, 
It's not our responsibility. It's yours. And the most we would take out, let's say they damaged it or it left it out in the rain and it got rusty. Well, I can find another one for under 100 bucks. So I just said the most we'll take out of your deposit is 100 bucks. So that was a fun add-in just to make it, you know, unique in this changing market. That's awesome. Something fun and different. It's going to make you stand out. Right. Yeah. And like somewhere like Austin too, where a lot of the people that are coming in are like active and same thing with Colorado to highlight that, you know, it's all set up for you and a massage. That sounds amazing. It, she's mm-hmm. really good. She does like good deep tissue. So, all right. So we, now let's jump in to the, the meat of this episode. We've already talked about such great stuff, but to, to go ahead and keep the title in sync, we want to talk about who are those remote workers. And I love, Aaron that in your book, it says that it's around 22% of the U.S. workforce that is expected to be working remotely by 2025. That's a large percentage. And, you know, people are noticing and taking action for those 28-plus day stays or 30-day 30, 30 stays. So I really want to jump into that uh, conversation, starting off with it's 10. So it's chapter two in American Nomads, and it's 10 things to know about remote workers. So the first one, Aaron, that I want to talk about is you emphasize what the difference is between digital nomads and remote workers, because Katie and I just always called them digital nomads until I read your book. We use them pretty interchangeably right now. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I did too. And it's actually why I called it American Nomads. I mean, I liked the name too. But I think that American Nomads are a little bit different than digital nomads. With the idea being that in the past, you were a digital nomad. A lot of times that meant that you went overseas and maybe you were earlier in your career where you had some more flexibility and you could... Maybe you hadn't acquired a car or a house or anything else. And so it was easier to take off and go overseas. It's much more of an adventure. Um, So I think it's driven more by where you can go and where you can live cheaply and work remotely. Whereas I think American nomads, because of COVID and because of the way the world changed, they, I think they are more focused maybe on the United States. They tend to be white collar workers. Um, So even though we were talking about, you know, it being roughly 20% and the overall workforce being remote work, I bet that's much higher for white collar workers going forward. Even though we're in the struggle right now with like Elon and some other people talking about people coming back to work, I think long-term the workers will win. If you want the best talent, they're going to want to be able to work from wherever, especially if you can't make a case for them coming back in. So I think what's different is that they might be traveling more in the U.S. They might be a little bit more established in their careers and have more money. And I think I also was saying in the book that it tends, there might be a higher population of females because females tend to be a little bit more risk averse. So they might not be looking to drop everything and go overseas, but they might be more comfortable with the experience of dropping everything and moving from Denver to San Francisco or Denver to Boston or New York City or wherever for a couple of months. And so I think you're going to have a higher percentage of white collar workers in the space and a higher percentage of females in the space. I have seen a large increase in the housing requests, like when the tenant leads that come through for us landlords, 
when I look through the unmatched and the matched, it's tons of digital nomads. It's it's like now I'm seeing about half and half in the Austin area. Maybe probably not that much, but I I notice a lot more travelers coming through. Like, hey, we're looking for a fun place to stay for a couple months than I used to. So that's pretty cool. Well, it's interesting too, because that feels like fairly geographic too, like, and seasonal, right? Like there's some places in the country where I think the primary driver to go there might be like a good contract or something, but there's other areas like Austin or San Francisco that have that, that appeal where yes, you are interested in that as a tourist, but you're also interested in like living there for a few months, almost as like an extended tourist experience, if we want to call it that, right? Like there's certain cities that really do have that appeal in certain areas of the country. And when you think about seasonality and let's say you're from, you know, the North and you are over the winters and you have the chance to work remote, like who wouldn't, who wouldn't want to do that? Especially post COVID, right? Like the, the amount of people that Aaron, do you have any stats on that about how many people are working remotely post COVID versus pre COVID? I mean, I know it's like dry. I don't have the stat offhand, but I know I've read more articles than I can count about it. And it's like, it's staggering. And I don't know, I don't know anyone who can't speak to it. Like my husband is in the basement working right now. Right. Like, yeah. Well, and I made the point in the book too, that I, I want to say it was closer to 5% before COVID. Um, but I, don't have anywhere to cite that. I could look at the book, but I'm not going to do that right now. Right. Um, I think it was closer to 5%. And I think the issue and the point that I do make in the book is that it doesn't just benefit the worker. It actually benefits the employer. So even though we're having resistance right now, I think long-term, aside from the fact of wanting to get the best talent, I mean, companies more and more are going to see the benefit to this because they don't have to pay for expensive commercial real estate. They don't have to pay for utilities. They don't have to pay for an IT force, right? And from my studies and what I've seen, and also I felt like my own personal experience way before COVID is that they're saying, you know, remote workers are more productive. And this book says that, um, you know, they're 13% more productive than the people that come to the office. And so that is a huge driver and huge benefit for, um, for businesses. And I think as you see generations age out and generations come in, this model is just going to be adopted. And also to your point about it being seasonal, I agree with that. I think midterm rentals match the seasonality of short-term rentals, which isn't to say that in your down season, you won't have someone come in and rent. For instance, in Denver, we always stay rented even during down season, but we can definitely charge more during the spring and the summer than we can during the winter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So my cousin uh, backs up your point. I was talking to her the other day and she's like, I, I really miss going into the office because I loved talking to my coworkers. I said, yeah, that's the part like, you don't get much work done. She said, I know I talk for like five hours a day. <laughs> so she said, now yeah. she'll just call a coworker and say, Hey, we're about to have an hour conversation. Like I want to catch up with you. And they'll just talk on the phone instead and meet up occasionally. I'm like their work is probably way more productive. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that all kind of balances out because I think as a society, we are all like very kind of remote and it'll be interesting to see how we counteract all, not all, but a good a good chunk of us working remote or digital nomad style um, and how we're going to keep that social life, right? Like, are we all going to start going to 
bowling night and like (laughs) (laughs) what what are we gonna do are we gonna start having more book clubs because at some point we're social beings and we've got to counteract that so that's so interesting I was in a um group for authors that you know and they were talking about whether or not books are the future or what and they were saying that um bookstores are having this resurgence and so are book clubs because people are lonely and I think Co-working spaces are going to do quite well. And I think Meetup also has a huge opportunity right now because yeah. I don't think people want to go back into the office five days a week, but I think they miss people. I miss people. They miss people. But I would yeah. rather be around people where I can talk about wine or a book or a hobby that I like versus work. Yeah. So yeah, it'll it'll just be interesting to see how we all kind of come out the other side of this. But I don't, I mean, remote working and, and people traveling, that's not going anywhere. It's just not. I think, you know, um, not to mention the other guy, but you look at Airbnb statistics and they said, you know, for the first, I want to say 14 years of them being around, only 10% of their bookings were, uh, you know, this 28, 30 plus day stay. And in the year of COVID, they added another 15%. So now a Mm -hmm. quarter of all their bookings. So it was 10% for the first 14 years. And then in a year, they added 15%. Now it's 25%. You can see them leaning into it. And obviously you guys are experiencing it, right? So I think that this growth is not going anywhere. People are not going to want to go back. Right. I think this is a great time to insert a question I had that I I didn't know where we were going to fit it into the show. And this is perfect. So I have found with the you know, short-term rental sites, uh, furnish finder in general, because midterm rentals, if you're only midterm and you don't intermingle with short-term as well, you don't want to book that far in advance because of those gaps. So I know that we get a lot of traveler frustration with that because they're like, I'm trying to plan ahead for those, you know, Mm -hmm. type A ready to, to do everything, uh, ahead of time. Um, they want to book something for next year or for later in the year. But as landlords, we're not ready to accept that because we don't know when our next availability will be. Uh, If we have, you know, travelers that are doing a remodel or an insurance claim, those that don't have a set date that they're moving out. So how how do you educate uh, others on, you know, the other guy and on our site, how to, uh, how to embrace your calendar or just your headline well to really communicate your your availability in the right way. Yeah, I'm happy you asked that question because I would say it's a number one question that comes up in consulting and on the videos sometimes is people are very worried about the vacancy rates. I feel like this is always going to be the same if you have a long-term rental too. Like I, I think sometimes people get in their head because they got used to short-term rental money. And so that's the only money they want to make, but it's like short-term rentals are a fairly new thing and midterm rentals are very new, but long-term rentals always existed and you had to plan ahead of time and stuff. So I haven't personally found my vacancy rates to be a big issue. I just plan um, plenty in advance. And again, I use the headlines as a real opportunity, the headlines and the first paragraph is a real opportunity to say when the property is available. And I mean, right now I have someone that is aggressively trying to get a place that won't be available until September 1st. So to your point, Kelly, you know, the type A personality that wants to get in there and I love them. That seems like a great tenant to me. Like they're on top of things and 
Um, so I'm happy to have them. But again, the vacancy has not been a big deal for me. It might be an issue on the traveler side, but I will say as the host, it has not been an issue as far as getting people in. Do you go ahead and book those that are inquiring far out and you haven't seen a, a gap there in your vacancy? No, I haven't at all. And again, it might okay. be, you know, this particular, I, in general, my Denver properties and my Colorado Springs properties, which are different types of properties, one's a single family home, the others were condos. Um, it just has not, it has not been an issue. And I am going to take this tenant if they want it, because I always tell people this, and I mean it, you set your price really high when you're far out and you go low as you get closer. So right now, very high price and they want it for September 1st. I'm going to take them if I can. Okay. Good. Thanks. Yeah, it's 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 interesting the the time frame that these midterm travelers are looking. A lot of them, if they're on a work contract and they don't know if it's going to renew or if it's not going to renew, or they sign it last minute. Um, I I know if I look on Furnished Finder in my back end right now at my um, matched and unmatched leads, a lot of them are looking for a lease that starts within the next. 10 to 15 days. And I'm sitting here and both of my midterm rentals, one of them, um, the lease is going to be up beginning of March and the other one is the beginning of April. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, I need to start pursuing my next tenant. But then I'm like, I don't even think we're there yet. So there's such a wide variety. And it's, it's interesting because when I think about like planning a vacation, I plan a few months in advance. And if I'm looking for a long-term rental, I'm probably going to look even further in advance. But this midterm space, I feel like there is, you have to be both patient and waiting for the right tenant and knowing that things can happen very quickly at the same time. So it's like this weird universe where you're like, okay, be patient. But then when, when the right one, like you could have it like that, like it's, it's a different type of universe. I had kind of an interesting experience in, uh, so we have a one bed, one bath in Denver and we had this nurse come in and she secured it in November. And then she wasn't going to come in until January 15th but the place was going to be available January 1st. Uh, but I really liked her. So we asked her if she would split the difference with us. So she would start paying January 8th. Um, and she did. And I know some people don't like that. Like sometimes you'll get tenants and they get kind of turned off if you ask them to split the difference. But in my mind, that's a good, that is a good indicator of their willingness to compromise. So I'm actually okay letting go of tenants like that. But then this nurse came in and she was awesome. And then within two days of her being there, her contract got canceled. Um, so she asked me if we would work with her. And I said, yeah, you know, let me know. I'll post it. And I got someone else in um, immediately, which probably means that I'm underpriced, honestly, if I'm having someone come in immediately. But I, it ended up working out fine. And it was a, it was a good experience. But I am I'm a little bit, you know, the person that doesn't have a plan that wants to come in immediately. I want to make sure they're the right person um, before I agree to that tenancy. Yeah. Right. We just had the same situation where we had an availability for February 1st, but we had a lot of people interested in March 1st. And so our, the, the, the guy that we did work it out with, he had a, he had found a property on a different site and was there till March 1st, but it was not what he expected. It was just a lot louder than he expected. It was a lot more dreary than he expected. And so 
he was we already knew like this is a great guy because he was honorable he wasn't trying to get out of the rental he said you know i was i committed to this i'm sticking with it but i you know i i want a new place when it expires i'm like you get brownie points right there just for continuing with the system right and so what we did is we worked it out the same way that you're saying is we have to, I said, uh, I let them know we have to cover our mortgage. So I can't commit to you ahead of time. If I know that I have to fill this, you know, random gap. So if you can work with us, then we'll go ahead and just have you pay rent to cover the mortgage. You can move in early if you want. And of course he did. And then he's still paying the remainder of his stay on Airbnb. If that, uh, not if that host, you know, makes him uh, do so, but it worked out where he w- we were able to work together and figure out a solution. And we hear that time and time again. Yeah, this is where I would encourage anyone who has a property on Furnished Finder to, even if you see someone who's an unmatched lead, and even if it's an unmatched lead by far, right? Even if the date's wrong, the budget's wrong, the number of bedrooms is wrong. Like, reach out and just talk to them and try to see, okay, what do you need? What are you looking for? Like, maybe there's a way that my property could work for you and it could be mutually beneficial because sometimes it's a lot easier to fit those pieces together. And a lot of times you can actually serve those travelers um, in a way. So, I mean, reach, reach out and just have those conversations. Um, because you can, you can find some good tenants that way. Yeah. Well, this is such great conversation. We've covered number one so far, so we better move on to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what, if we don't make it through, everyone's just going to have to go get Aaron's book. Oh yeah. Because (laughs) I even started reading it and it's so great. (laughs) <laughs> okay, that's a better solution. But let's let's run through about the next five. I think they'll be pretty quick. Uh, so, Aaron, what are the typical industries and average salaries of uh, traveling workers? Yeah, so the industries are going to be, again, kind of a white-collar focus. So you see finance. Even though finance can be conservative in some of their practices, there are a lot of remote workers that are in finance, that are in insurance, Um, Obviously, in the medical field, you have traveling nurses, um, a lot of people out of tech. For us, at least, you know, because we're in Denver, we have a ton of people coming from the East Coast and the Midwest that want to be here for the weather. Um, But I would say, you know, areas where you're really doing a desk job and you don't necessarily, you know, I think creative maybe is a problem as far as like you might want to be in the office to collaborate for that. But a lot of like lawyers and stuff, they don't necessarily need to be right in front of you. You can be remote. So again, a lot of white collar workers. And I think even though, you know, the stats, I was talking about the average salary, I think is in the 60K for Uh remote workers. But again, just like um, the average age is 39, I think that that stat might be misleading because you might have a young uh, cohort and you might have an old cohort. And so the average is maybe not exactly who who is actually renting. And I think it's the same thing. You might have a young group that is traveling that doesn't make as much. And then you might have people that are four or five years into their career and are at the 80, 100K plus that are traveling. And certainly I think that's true in Denver because Denver is not a cheap place to be. And probably a lot of these cities, I would say the bulk of our tenants are 100, 120 plus. I like the way how you broke it down in the book where take the average salary. Okay, now figure out what is the monthly take home after taxes. 
okay, now take that, that monthly take home and apply the 30% rule of, you know, you want to rent a place that's about 30% of what you make. And you do a great job of emphasizing in the book that this is all relative information. You know, it's, it's just averages, but a lot of people will skew that and not worry about the 30% rule because something attracted them in a home. They're like, you know what? I can pay a little extra for this one because I really like that feature. And so I won't give uh, the, the average salary or the numbers or things like that because you need to get the book. But she has some excellent graphs all throughout the book uh, of you, you really did your homework on statistics. And I think that's been one of my favorite parts is just reading those statistics of how, you know, how they apply to your strategy as a landlord and who those remote workers are that you're serving. So it's been really great read. Thank you. I should take you around everywhere I go, but I'm trying to convince people. Uh, Kelly and I are a sucker for graphs and data, and I'm a sucker for Excel. Like, you give us that stuff, oh my and we just, like, awesome. Yep. I'm such a data nerd. And I you know, and I think a lot of investors are. Whenever I say I'm an enthusiast for Excel, my favorite thing is to sit down with Excel for a little bit. You'll have like real estate investors be like, yes, yes, you're speaking. Right. Because I think, you know, we probably attract that type of person. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to combine here a little bit. Let's talk about, because we already touched on one a little bit, the gender that is more likely to travel, relationships, children, and age? Because some of these we already, we already tapped on a little bit. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a tricky conversation to have because I think people get upset. We've talked about gender a little bit. I think women tend to be more risk averse. Men are more willing to go out and try things, maybe things that they're qualified for, maybe things that they're not. Um, and I think when you look at families and groups, I think the bulk of your medium term rentals should be, I think condos and townhomes are great for medium term rentals because you probably, the majority of your audience and your tenant pool are going to be singles or couples. If you want a larger house, then I really recommend going after college kids. I know people sometimes think, well, traveling nurses, they might travel as a group. And honestly, I did have a friend um, that I've known for a long time that used to travel with her friends, her other nursing friends and needed a big house. But I guess my feeling is that the majority of traveling nurses make a decent amount of money. And I think when you start to make more money, you tend to pay more for privacy. And so I'm not sure that they want to be in a dorm situation, uh, nor do they want a big house that, you know, is unnecessary. I think, you know, studios to three bedrooms are really good for this, unless you're going after those college kids. And then you know, maybe again, if you're an outlier and you have a four or five bedroom, really lean into that and do everything that you can to attract families. But for the most part, I don't think you need something that big because most people, in my opinion, are not marching across the United States with their kids. Their kids have a schedule. They have activities they're involved in. They have grandparents they want to see all the time. So I don't think, I think, you know, maybe 10% or 5% is traveling with their kids. But for the most part, it's going to be a couple of friends, a couple or a single person um, Mm -hmm. that is. It's interesting because Kelly has larger properties and often caters to families who are um, in the middle of an insurance claim or something like that. So they're, correct me if I'm wrong here, Kelly, but a lot of times not necessarily traveling 
but they're displaced, um, which, you know, is, I would not, you know, that's not a nomad style, but there's, there's, if you do have a larger property, that's another way that you can utilize it, right? Whereas I, my two midterm rentals are, I have a two bedroom and a studio and I have yet, I mean, I think we could have even gone smaller than the two bedroom because right now I just have a single nurse in there and I'm like, are you just bed hopping every night? Like <laughs> everyone I've talked to is like, I just need somewhere to, to sleep, but you're right. I mean, we have two young kids and every time we talk about extended travel, it's either during the summer or, you know, it's me and my husband talking after the kids go to bed and we're daydreaming about, okay, maybe after they graduate, we could escape the winter and go down South for four months because we're both wimps with the cold. Um, but yeah, it's, those are all very, very valid points. Yep. You, you nailed it, Katie. I was, that's what I was actually going to share was, Aaron, most of ours are three bedroom, two baths here in Austin is, is the majority of whatever reason. That's what we're attracted to and pretty much the only thing we have. And we do have one condo that we partner with someone and uh, manage it down in the middle of Austin. But it honestly so far and it, we've only had to have one round of tenants there because they wanted to stay for six months to a year. It's a it's a traveling medical couple. So that was nice. I'm like, sweet, six months to a year sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. And you get that a lot. Like, that's not abnormal for us. And so we do see, surprisingly, it's still a lot of couples ren renting our three-bedroom, two-baths because they are coming uh, and need more space for working from home or just want more space to, you know, be able to spread out. And we've even had individual traveling uh, medical professionals that just had uh, been doing it longer, had a larger, larger budget and, you know, went for that niche market that we were go get going after the adventure seekers. Uh, we, all of our homes are fenced. Uh, we're all, we're dog friendly at every one of our places. So it's like, they want those homes that are fenced. They can jump on a trail with their dog uh, when they get mm -hmm. off a shift or just live life uh, as they are coming to Austin and figuring out what's next. Where do I want to live? Where do I want to buy that kind of stuff? So yeah, yeah, yeah. nailed it. Okay. Um, number seven was education level. I found that very intriguing. Like the digital nomad survival guide says 55% are college educated while 28% have masters. That's pretty interesting. So what, what do you want to share about that? Yeah. Uh, I think that, it's not that important other than it might say what kind of careers they're going into or what kind of money they're making. But I think, you know, in that particular chapter, I was talking about how you might decorate your place. And like, for instance, I was saying, well, I love books, so I want to have books and it's something that would appeal to me. Um, but, you know, there's always a question of like, what do you add if it's not going to add value? And this is something that comes up a lot in consulting and a lot with my real estate clients is, they get excited, understandably. It's a small business for them and they want people to have a great experience and they're passionate and they're excited. They want to talk about things. But at the end of the day, there are things that don't necessarily add value. It's just what you like. So there's always a push and pull with that. And I think that's where I was going in the book is that, you know, they do have a high education level. So you might have, you know, a bookcase with books or something on it. But for the most part, um, I, it's a... It, 
it is more relevant to how much they can rent, where they want to be, what their interests are outside of the apartment or, you know, the condo. And I think less about what you put in. I, I do feel like you're starting to see a little bit of pushback on the forums about places being all Ikea. And I think that maybe speaks to education and the uh, monetary level of the people that they you know, I think Ikea is great. I love Ikea, but I think that it also does kind of bring you back to college days or early in your career. And I think people might want a little bit more upgraded furniture that reminds them of home or something they would buy based on where they're at in their lives. Yeah. That's the one couch we've had to replace was it was an Ikea couch and yeah. it broke. They sunk into it and it just broke. So we had to find a new couch. <laughs> And I, I, again, I want to piggyback on what you're saying because these, a, a lot of these travelers are very educated and they're experienced and they, but they understand it's a rental property. So get something that is durable, right? Don't get the white velvet couch, but it can be cute and it can be affordable and thank God for the internet because there are answers on there, right? So like, you can go beyond Ikea and you can also get things like throw pillows. I never spend a lot on those because if they get worn out, that's fine. I'm going to replace them for $20 and then it'll be nice and fresh, right? Um, so put some thought into that. And I always think to get, try to put yourself in the shoes of the traveler, right? Um, and Kelly, I don't remember which guest it was, but we were talking to someone who suggested that you always put one piece of furniture or art or something that stands out that makes your place memorable. And, um, I literally, okay. Look at her and her memory. I literally had a tenant say, I just love your blue couch. And I'm like, I'm so glad I love my, my blue couch too. It's like a blue velvet couch and it was not expensive, but it's pretty durable. But like, you know, give them, give them, unless you're going for the college kids, give them a little bit of an elevated experience and you'll spend less in the long run. So we've heard two things. One was Robert said about the highlighting a piece of art. So like pick your piece of art, a nice large piece of art, and then build the theme throughout the home around that piece of art. And then we had another guest and I, Oh, I can't remember who this one was that said, Based off the size of your space, start with the largest item because if I think that was Gabe. Was it Gabe? No, I don't know. Maybe. So start with the start with the larger item because otherwise, if you start with the smaller items, you end up spending more money to fill the space. Where if you just go with the right size couch from the beginning or the right size mm -hmm. bed, then you don't have to spend more money to fill that space. And no one cares if you have cheap pint glasses but they want a nice mattress. Yes. And I think, you know, and what you were talking about with throw pillows, throw pillows kind of have the same purpose as paint. You could have a really colorful throw pillow that draws the attention or makes the couch actually look more modern or cooler or whatever. And I like your point too, Kelly, about starting, you know, your former guest, how he was saying, start with something bigger or do it right from the beginning, because I think a lot of people spend way more money trying to cut corners or being really savvy. I am, my husband and I, this has been a debate between us. I think I've won this battle, but um, in the past it was like, 
shop at Goodwill or just order everything off of, you know, Amazon or Target. And I am like, time is money and I just want it to look right. And I am willing to spend a little bit extra to have it delivered to me, know exactly what it is, be able to see the reviews. But I have a lot of clients that really love to do the deep dive. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know if it works out. That stuff breaks down. It doesn't always look right. It, you know, it's, it's a deal, but it's not right for the space. Oh my gosh, you guys, the last property we furnished, we got two dressers and my family was helping me set it up. And the the property before that, it took my brother who does woodworking like as like probably 20 hours a week. It took him a solid four and a half, five hours to build this dresser. And he was angered to his core. So the next, when we're doing the two bedroom, I ordered the two good review dressers from Wayfair. And you know, when you check out and it gives you the option, like, would you like to pay a hundred dollars for someone to assemble this? Uh, Yeah. Yes, I would. Yes. Yes, indeed. I would. That was the best hundred dollars I have spent to date because the woman who came in to assemble these dressers, you would look at her and think you're, you're going to assemble these, but she put them together so quickly, so efficiently. She was like in and out. And we all looked at her like you are an actual angel. None of us had to touch that dresser. And so like invest in that stuff, invest in your time because your time is money and it might save you some angry brothers too. And if I keep your marriage, I always say to my real estate, you'll think that this is fun. It is not fun, you know? And and also I want them to have a good experience so that they'll want to invest again, you know? And I think if your first property is just like, everything is a headache and stuff. That's not fun. It is a whole nother job. Not fun. So. Yep. We've made it guys. We're to the last three on the list. So we've got next demographics. So you've got, uh, your book emphasizes that people are, uh, leaving areas that are cost prohibitive and moving to more affordable cities with amiable climates. So, and you give some stats in there of which cities those might be, but what do you want to add about that? Yeah. I mean, I think again, it's not necessarily, you need to think about why they're leaving so that you can create a home or an environment for them that will be appealing. But some of this is not work that you need to do. It's work that the environment will do. I think Denver and Colorado in general lends itself to this in a way that I don't need to work very hard for. But we have a lot of people coming out of the Midwest um, and out of the North and also Arizona where the climate just gets really intense and they need a break. So in a lot of ways, the climate is doing the work for me. Um, And I think is so there's that. And then people coming out of big cities are going to move to areas that have a cute downtown or something. So I, you know, I'm kind of with this because I feel like a lot of people, a lot of this advice is like, if you were going to buy something brand new, this is what you would want to look at. But I hesitate to say that because I don't want people to feel discouraged or whatever if their property doesn't have everything on the checklist. It's like, if your property has three out of the five things on the checklist, or you're in a place without a great environment, without a great climate, that's okay. People still need to live there, but it's just more like if you're thinking about an investing decision, there are certain things that you're going to look for knowing that people are fleeing hard climates or they're fleeing overly expensive areas. However, if you're in an area 
you're limited in what you can do. You just, you modify your strategy a little bit, but um, I think that those places still appeal, but I just know, you know, I probably have recency bias and bias based off of what I do. And I know who the tenants that are coming in from out of state are looking for locally. I think the heart of the, the message and in, in everything you're saying though, is like awareness, right? Um, I can speak personally. We have properties in three different markets, three different climates, um, three different economic environments. And it really is about being aware, getting to know the different markets and the different areas and knowing how to market your property appropriately for that area. Right. Um, it's when you live with your head in the clouds and you just don't understand seasonality and fluctuations and people's wants and needs, that's when stuff gets out of whack. So I I think all of these factors are things that everyone should know about the, the area if they are going to buy a property or if they already own the property, you should know it like the back of your hand, right? Yeah. So before we leave demographics, I have a very important question for Aaron, because we've had, you know, we ask on our show, we ask for comments, we ask for people to share, like, what do y'all want to talk about? And one of the things that people want to talk about is in these harder climates that you're talking about, where it is more expensive, such as New York or Boston or Seattle, what advice do you have for those property owners and midterm hosts that are having a hard time finding the right tenant that actually is able to pay that? How can they market their property correctly to, to reach that higher price audience or just, uh, you know, take a hit, uh, until the market turns? Like what's, what's your advice there? No, I think people that have those more expensive properties in the higher end markets, their tenant pool is willing to pay for convenience and luxury. So I guess the real lean in that you would do on those properties is maybe you furnish that place in all West Elm or all property barn and you eat pottery barn. Um, you put that in the headline and say, so that they have this idea of luxury, you take expensive photos because again, that's the expectation. You think about the things that appeal and what your high end tenants are used to where they shop, the advertising that they're used to, and you match that. Um, and then maybe again, bring in luxury services. Like we have a dog walker come, you know, once a day and that's baked into the price or, we have an on-site masseuse that comes in once a month and we pay for that. Something where, again, I think people that make money will pay for convenience and pay for nicer things. And so you target them, but your marketing also needs to match that. Like weekly cleans or monthly cleans or something like that as well. That's excellent advice. I like that. Especially most of these midterm rentals, people aren't actually seeing in person before they book because they're typically occupied. Right. So the design is even more important because they want to know that they're going to feel at home and they're going to feel comfortable. And I mean, our, my furnished rentals are generally cuter than my house, which is mm. <laughs> probably yeah. how it should be. Right. Um, because you want that space to be like exquisitely inviting and comfortable and just like make everyone feel like they really can set down their suitcase or their stuff and just unwind. 
Okay, I did think of another important. Let's counterbalance it and say, okay, we're we're reaching those uh, that need to have a luxury market. But what about those hosts that, you know, anywhere around the country that have a smaller budget to start off with and don't have the ability to go to Pottery Barn or the higher end stores? So what do you recommend for someone getting started? And that may not let's let's pretend that they don't even have their property yet. Like where should someone start that has a lower budget and wants to jump into the midterm rental game? I think midterm rentals actually lend themselves very well to people with a smaller budget because I think they work very well with townhomes, condos, studios. And so this is another one of those real estate mantras that I want to push against where people are like, you don't pay for anything with an HOA. I don't really agree with that. I've had properties in HOAs and I've been really happy with them. And again, it's a lower price point so you can get in. But then that HOA takes care of your yard. They take care of if there's a plumbing that you can get rid of property management because you can move, you can offload a lot of that onto your property manager. So I would say, you know, if you have the budget for a tiny studio in a great city, that would be my first move because I think that's going to rent all day long. Um, If you don't want to go out of your area, you just want something local, then I say go over something that's affordable, furnish it affordably, but then really lean into that and say, um, you know, this is a no stress property. So you and then outline all the ways that you've been thoughtful about that property. Like this is a self check in. It has a 60 inch TV, um, you know, that's a smart TV that you can, you know, work with. It has a super comfortable mattress. It's dog friendly. So you kind of make it more about the fact that this is not a luxury place, but it's a relaxing place and it's a professional's place and you don't need to worry about the stress. Like I'm a professional, everything will be taken care of. Um, This is a no frills place and you're going to pay accordingly, but also you're not going to have any headaches. So I think there's absolutely a market for that too, because you have a lot of frugal tenants that that don't care about it. They care about paying less, but not having headaches. I I also think that it's important for people to remember that a lot of times these studios or these one beds or sometimes even the two beds get a lot less offers. So you can have a lot more negotiating room in there, particularly if they have an HOA. Um, our most recent rental that we bought has an HOA. And initially, just like you said, Erin, we were like, I don't want an HOA. And now I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I don't have to insure any of the outside of the property. I don't have to do snow removal. I don't have to do lawn care. Well, now I can I can property manage that sucker from 800 miles away with no issues at all. It makes that completely attainable. A hundred percent. And I mean, I've, I've done these type of rentals in homes, single family homes, and then in condos. And I speak to my condo tenants way less. You know, the single family homes, there's a yard issue. There's an electricity issue. There's this, there's that. The condo tenants, I almost never speak to. All right. This is a really great conversation. So remember, if you like the advice that Erin is giving, she is a consultant and she is not only an author of American Nomads, but she has a new book coming out that I think was just released. Is it is it active? Can they buy it now? Kind of depends on when you release this issue, this episode. That's <laughs> true. That's very true. When's it? Re- is the book? Uh, when's the book available? 
my guess is that at the latest it will be available on March 1st. I mean, it's, it's in its, I should have my final edits back today. So then it just needs to be formatted and released. So I'm hoping by the end of next week, it'll be up. Exciting. And what's the name That's of the amazing. book? Um, it is called Aaron's Guide to Midterm Rentals. And then, That's pretty straightforward. Love it. That's great. <laughs> and and where, where can listeners pick that up? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so it will be available on Amazon and Kindle and paperback. And probably by the summer, there will be an audiobook portion of it as well. That's where I got my copy from Amazon, American Nomads. There it is. And I got mine on the Kindle version. Oh. So just so everyone knows, it's available there as well. I think it was included with my Kindle Unlimited subscription. You know, and for the new one for um, with the Kindle side of it, it's going to directly link to videos and also it'll be more interactive in the Kindle so that you'll have formats where you can go and check, you know, if you don't feel like reading the paragraph about how to do something, you can check out the video and stuff. So I'm trying to make it more digitally interactive for the next. So it's encouraging my slackerness. That's right. I love it. And for us podcasters, did you say that there's going to be an audio version of the second book? Yes. The second book will absolutely have an audio version. I just, this will be my first go with an audio version. So I'm thinking the audio version will probably be out by, let's say, May 1st. Okay. Okay, great. Awesome. Well, we have two more things to wrap up. The 10 things to know about remote travelers. So personality, I found that very intriguing and it's broken down into two sections, the female remote worker mindset and the male remote worker mindset. So why don't you give it, let's start with the female remote worker mindset. What are they like? Yes. My female tenants have been more concentrated on the appearance of the place. Safety is a bigger issue for the females. They're thinking about it more. And then also they tend to, they tend to have very high standards for themselves and very high standards for their landlord. So if you say a cutting board is there, it better be there a lot of times for the female tenants, whereas I would say the male tenants are maybe not as worried about it. And then also depending on your property. So if your property is in an area that's not that safe or it's not well lit, um, I think it's going to be less appealing to females that are new to a city and don't know if the area is safe or if they need to worry about it. Whereas I think male tenants tend to be more, they they can roll a little, they're a little bit more open to the property in the basement with the bars on the window or uh, an area with not as good of lighting or not as appealing. Um, I find that my male tenants tend to, um, they are more flexible, but they don't pay as much. I think women will pay again, just like your higher income earners, women will pay more for a higher experience. Um, so it's a little bit tricky. I mean, these are huge generalizations, but that's been my experience. Love it. So they, you, you, in the book, it says that they tend to have advent, an adventurous spirit. And, you know, there are different reasons why someone might stay and when it's time to move on. So I think it was just covering that idea of who are you reaching and how can you, uh, you know, connect those dots to have them stay longer or, you know, there's certain travelers just when, when they say, you know, I'm, I'm moving on after this, that they are moving on. So I think that was the experience side 
um, if you want to add some details to that. Yeah, it seems like people come in for all sorts of reasons. Um, you know, I think a lot of times what I love about midterm rentals is that they think they're going to come in for three or four months and they end up re-renewing the lease because they're really happy. They've come to love the city or they've come to love your place and they want to stay, but they're complacent. So all the furniture is here for them. They're comfortable and they know the system. And so you'll have people re-rent from you. And obviously this speaks to good communication and a good experience. No one is going to re-rent from you if they're not happy with the way that things went. And I do feel like most people can handle adversity as long as they're communicated with well. So that's always my number one tip to landlords is do not blow people off and do not always listen to them and always tell them if it's going to take them more time. That will be the strongest way to get tenants that are open to re-renting to re-rent. And then you'll have other tenant pools that are just going to move on because they've decided to buy a property or they're off to the next city or some life circumstances change that's out of the landlord's control, in which case you don't need to worry about them. You've had a good experience. They've moved on. But if you want to try and capture those people that keep renting from you at that elevated rent, always be a good communicator and that will help. Mm-hmm. Excellent. All right, Erin. Well, I think that was such a great overview about American Nomads. And for anyone who's interested in learning about more, this is such a growing demographic of monthly travelers that if you have monthly furnished rentals or you are thinking about having them, if you don't dig into this, like you're just, you're just hurting yourself. So it's, it's something that is well worth the time to dig into and learn more about. Um, Aaron's book, like Kelly said, is a great resource. I'm sure the second book will be just as good of a resource, but I want to hand over the mic to you one more time, Aaron, and just give us any tips and tricks for any landlords that, that you're, they're just thinking, okay, give me some advice on midterm rentals. Give me some best practices. Give me some secret sauce from Aaron of, of things that, you know, maybe you do a little bit differently or just, you know, give us your final few words about things that you want to tell the landlords out. Sure. Um, I want to reinforce your point, which is to say, I think people are leaving money on the table if they're not looking into the midterm rental space, because I think it's absolutely the future. So early adopters tend to benefit from that. So getting on this is very smart. I think the book has checklists and resources and interviews, both with tenants and landlords. So if you're trying to get a feel, hopefully that is helpful. Um, I like checklists a lot. And I always advise people, instead of going to Ikea four times, go one time. So you try and write out everything before you go. That's been helpful to me. But as far as like just a general, like my top three tips to medium term renters, I think I've covered communication, but I, I am obnoxious about being a good communicator because I just think it's a good courtesy and it's a good way to establish yourself as a professional and help your tenant. I think my second tip would be that this tenant pool is probably not traveling with kids, but they might be traveling with fur babies. So you can really stand out and have a much larger tenant pool if you allow. I say for dogs, I actually don't allow for cats, um, but I think dogs are a big one. A bonus tip on that is check with your insurance. There are certain breeds of dogs that your insurance won't cover. So it's important to know that. Um, And then your third one, I just think smart box. 
I so I would say for midterm rentals, don't use a property manager. You can do a lot with a smart lock and a relationship with a good cleaner and a handyman without having to throw away a ton of money to property management each month. So um, the sites such as Furnish Finder and stuff make it very, very easy to connect directly with tenants. And so um, and you guys have great tools on the back end too, like key check as far as having leases and having background checks. I've used them. I have liked them. I have found them very easy to use. And so I think um, I, even if you're out of state, I think you should try to manage it yourself the first round. The, the worst thing that can happen is that you find out you don't like it and you put on a property manager for the next round. Yeah, that is really good advice. So, well, we appreciate you being here with us, Erin. And for those that have enjoyed this episode, you can uh, check the show notes on YouTube, or we also on the audio versions provide the link to uh, Furnish Finder, the Furnish Finder landlord page, or to uh, their direct website. So go ahead and connect with Aaron if you would like uh, to hear more or know more. And please subscribe. And we would be honored by your five-star reviews if you're enjoying the show. If you made it this far, you're enjoying the show. And we appreciate it. And uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, those are uh, two great spots to leave a review. Thanks, and everybody have a, a good week. We'll see you next week. Thank you.